Now tonight I want to talk about congruent effort. And I'm trying to lay out a path here for us all that is um, builds upon each factor, each aspect builds upon itself so that it becomes very obvious and very clear and very heartfelt that, oh, this is the way. This is the way, of course. Now, I may not choose to travel this way. I may not be ready to travel this way um, for various reasons, either um, psychological readiness or fear will hold us back. But at least I'll know the correct orientation uh, when uh, I am prepared, when I am ready. And some of us in this room are ready now and just need that orientation in order uh, to fulfill the journey. And one of the uh, great mistakes we make early on is that um, we just kind of flail at the shining and unlikely prize. We don't, it's just like, sort of like we're at a carnival, you know, and we're just throwing balls at things. and it does, There's no real cohesion in it. And uh, But we feel like we're being, we're dedicating ourselves to some intentionality, but uh, it's so mixed and so varied and so disproportional and so out of balance that it feels... Um, troubling to an outside observer. So let's line ourselves up here. And uh, congruent effort. All right, now incongruent effort doesn't take uh, an account where we're going or who we need or what we need to do to get there. It just goes. <laughs> so as a child, that was very much my uh, my uh, modus operandi. My, my father would give me something to do, and I just—I wouldn't—I wouldn't study the problem. I wouldn't take it into the understand what the difficulty was. I just barrel into it. And uh, he patiently would often wait for me to uh, do so much damage to myself that I had to back up and reconsider. <laughs> Well, my spiritual journey hasn't been much more successful early on. <laughs> and from listening to some of your stories, neither have you. So we better get on the same page here. We better get on the same page. Now, uh, I, I need to have this make sense. And I find that there's a, uh, if, if some of you have heard this before, but I, it still brings everybody into the intellectual um, Intellectual, on the same intellectual page, so that we can understand why and what the effort, where the effort is derived from and where it's going to. So let me just start with uh, something that I've said uh, and some of you have heard, as I mentioned, and that is the derivation of life itself. Hmm? We're trying to get back and join life in some way, but we don't know what we're joining. Uh, we have this sort of ethereal sense of life, you know, in some kind of oneness, kind of a homogenized ball out there that we're supposed to be going to. And, and yet all we have ever seen in front of our eyes is uh, 
appearance differences, uh, separation. We've, we felt, if we're honest, no more, no more closely aligned with each other than we were when we were beginning this thing. Now, why is that? People talk about oneness and wholeness and all of that, and yet we open our eyes and there you are and here I am. Nothing seems to be changing. And there are very few (laughs) work projects that I could give you that after however many years and hours you put into something, you're no closer to it and you would continue to do the same thing. (laughs) So we really need to listen here. Um, so, it is written on the tablets of something that, that 3.8 billion years ago, life sprang forth on this globe called the world once in some primordial goop. 3.8 billion years ago, life sprang forth and it sprang forth once not in multiple pools of goo but in one pool of goo once in one instant and all forms and expressions and derivations of life from animals to plants are derived from that single first beginning Somehow, genetically, they know that. For in fact, plant grass has 50% of the same genetic code as we do. Right? Somehow, scientists can then map that back to the first beginning. Now, from a consciousness perspective, what happened in that first beginning? This is essential if we want to know where we're going. We need to know how we sprang forth to be what we are. Form, form, consciousness, conscious awareness took form. Awareness or consciousness had pre-existed the expression of life springing forth. Awareness or consciousness has never changed, has never evolved. It has remained the same since time immemorial. But the expression of life that arose in consciousness and took hold of consciousness became an expression of consciousness after that initial beginning quickly began to adapt in appearances, in shape, in whatever way that it needed to adapt given the circumstances of its environment, the threats of its environment, and over the millennia, it adapted into a variety of different species, plants and animals, and a whole variety of different appearances and different expressions of that single first, single cell beginning. As an adapting species called the human being, during the course of our unfolding of history, 
we ran into very difficult and insecure situations where we needed to differentiate quickly and know the difference between a beast that was coming at us and a place to hide from that beast. Give it a tree, be it a tree or a cave. We needed to get out of the way so that we could survive as an organism within our species. And so the power to distinguish and and to differentiate and to separate ourselves out from became paramount to our survival. So appearances became very important to us. And the adaptation and the knowing and the knowledge of what appearances were safe and what appearances weren't also became extremely important. And because, as a species, we have spent many, many, many more hundreds and thousands of years evolving from that primitive need to know the difference, the uncivilized world of hostility, and the very short duration in which we have become civilized and no longer need to differentiate in the same way we did when we were in a primitive state, we still have this enormous backlog of conditioning to differentiate. Right? But now there aren't any more lions. There's Ralph and George. And we've made Ralph and George into a lion. (laughs) And so we're still hiding out. We're still differentiating. We're still particularizing. We're still distinguishing. And we're still hiding. And we have lost the common ground on which all life sprang forth. Because at one moment it was a single cell. That means we all have the same parent. And that's why in a moment on the beach, if we let down our guard and we just listen to the sounds of the ocean and the smells of the salt and the hearing and the sights, we can almost be transported back to that initial beginning. We feel the longing, the pull, the yearning of something much further back. Or we hear the sound of whales squeaking to each other under the water's surface. And there's something almost primordial that comes out of us. Or the wolf's baying at the, in, in the evening the wolf's call. And all of us have had those experiences where it's just something, we're almost transported back to something out of ourself. Because that common first beginning has made us share. There's much more in common that we share that we have negated through our need to differentiate. And we have lost the ability to tune back in to that common generation, to that, co- to that common denominator of all forms and expressions of life. And we have built, as we have maintained and, in, and in, uh, in included in our whole psyche, that uh, f- fight or flight 
mentality, we have backed ourselves again into more and more differentiated corners where we fear that threats loom. So it started by separating ourselves, the organism, from the environment. I, environment's out there externally, and I'm in here, in the skin body. So that was the first, perhaps, boundary we created. Now I have sufficient weaponry at my disposal to run or to yell or scream or to, to fight or flight so that I can save this organism from the rest of the rather treacherous-looking group of you all. And inside this organism, inside this skin, I have continued to differentiate because the mind doesn't know when to stop. You start this thing going in terms of division, it doesn't stop just because it's now safe to stop. It keeps projecting difficulties where there aren't any and therefore building boundaries and walls up further and further, insulating itself from perceived threats now, not actual ones. And so now, since the body grows old and dies, I have somewhat disowned. It feels like the body isn't really me, does it? It feels like we have a body. We don't really, not really me. You could cut off part of this thing and I could survive. And so somehow I've squirreled myself into this thing and the body is external to that. Kind of a threat because it's going to die and it gets old, it gets creaky. So where can I go for safe harbor? Well, how about the mind? Good, so now I'm in the mind. Now this feels more like this is where I really am. Except when we start looking around, there's hostility in this thing. We have moods and emotions and content we don't particularly care about at all. Thoughts that we don't associate or don't want to be associated with. Emotions that we don't want to own that seem that we should, that shouldn't be a part of us. And yet they do, they come. And so we have decided that we're not just going to own the whole mind. That's too exposed. I'm going to go back and cornered into a persona, into a group of an area of myself that I like. And then the rest of the mind I'm going to project out because I don't want it. There's nothing I can do about having it except I can give it to you and hate you for having it. <laughs> this keeps it very safe, doesn't it? <laughs> so now all I see is problems. Now I've got more problems, not fewer, because I've given you all my problems. <laughs> and as I perceive and look out upon you, I see, ugh, you're just a, ugh. <laughs> And I meet all of that with my judgment and my, I just, you know, we don't like each other too much. <laughs> and we just keep cornering ourselves back and back. Okay, so well, what, how does this have, what does this have to do with anything? Okay, so you might say that spirituality is coming out of all of that. It's in reverse order. It's. If that was evolution, this is de-evolution, or whatever it is, going back, back. And what we look for is not the differences and 
name and shape, color and presentation, where our mind can locate and create more differences and more problems from those differences. But we start looking for similarities. We're going back to our common heritage. What do we have in common here? That's what metta really is intended to do. If you stay with your differences, you can't love anyone because you can't get through the jabbering mess of our own self-dislike. If you start looking for what we share in common, the humanity, the humanity, then we can start actually loving that. Or better off if the humanity is vulnerable in some way, where their guard is down. That's what vulnerability means. They're sick or dying or young. You can love that because their guard is down. They aren't going to box you. They aren't going to hit you. You see, our guards come up when their guards come up. And so metta is an attempt to start the process in reverse, to start actually appreciating what we share in common. It's slow and somewhat um, discordant in the sense that we're, we're only partially successful because we start feeling that we could love the aggregate and have this huge heart for everyone who's out there and then the person next door, dog barks and we're calling them and telling them, somebody in our room snores and we're, I've got to get, who are you to, don't you know? you? So we're, it's easy to love the aggregate and difficult to love the individual. Because the individual brings back this set of obstacles. And when you can love all beings, yeah, all beings aren't defined. I love all beings. Great. Just don't put a snore in my room. (laughs) So, okay, so what we're doing now is that we're not focusing in on the differences any longer. We're not trying, we're not coming to terms at odds with differentiation, with separation. We're looking beyond all of that. Where is this common ancestry? What is it? When, what this awareness took form, the shapes, we lost ourselves in the shapes and we lost any perceptual uh, connection with the awareness that the shapes took. The shapes folded in around the awareness. And we've lost ourselves in the shapes of things. So much of Buddhism and much of, of, psych, um, of spirituality has to do with extricating ourselves from the aversion and attachments we have to shape and color, to the forms and expressions of the world, to the differences and measurements and comparisons and evaluations that go on endlessly within our mind as the mind continues on the same track that it will and has always and cannot change, which is the the track of perceiving threat and building barriers to perceived threats. That is how the mind works. But when we realize that what we want to do is to come back into the fold and not further differentiate, then we cannot let the mind form the basis for that strategy of 
reunification. Because the sense, the mind itself doesn't know how to do that. It only knows because it's an evolutionary tool. It only knows how to pick out the lion from the benign beast. And so we just can't count on that. And most of us still do. Most of us still do. Most of us look upon this journey of spirituality as an obstacle to behold and something, this tremendous problem called self. And that we have to do something about this, solve this problem of self. And we solve it as if there is a lion in the field. And we do everything we can to... Quiet the lion, calm the lion, center the lion, equanimity the lion. <laughs> Anything. So that we can quiet the lion down so that it can be tamed enough beast that we can call it our own. And nothing works. Nothing works. Because it's still differentiating. It's still using the same mechanism, the evolutionary mechanism, to come out of evolution. And that just never happens. Never happens. Now, some of you in the room here, I don't, no show of hands necessary, but are therapists. And some of you came into therapy or counseling or perhaps chaplaincy or any kind of helping field, um, perhaps from a different disposition, different um, job, uh, you got tired of working your life in one way and you thought, okay, I'll try therapy. To do that, you had to change your skills very, very, very quickly to be a good therapist. A good therapist is different than a good hospice director or manager or boss or etc. Those are two different skill sets that are necessary. And may I say that the jobs that's in front of us is very much the same. We have to change skill sets. We have to get out of this. The reason I picked therapy is because the skill set of a therapist is very much the skill set that's necessary for us to have congruent effort. Now, what's the skill set that we're looking for? And it's not beratement. It's not further delineation. It's not problem solving, it's not ambitious um, uh, goal setting. Those are all very well suited for the project manager, but not for the therapist. The therapist needs to tune in to what? To his or her ability to listen, to receive life. Not to influence, but to be influenced by it. To allow the person, to be able to meet the person in therapy or whatever the helping field may be, be it nursing or physician. The skill set that's necessary, you, yes, we have a certain amount of knowledge, but that knowledge is not what meets the patient. What meets the patient is our ability to tune in 
to that person and receive the patient in quietude. In quietude. We are the patient in our own spiritual journey. We are the patient. And the sense of self operates in one in accordance with one set of rules which further differentiates and hardens the difference between these objects called me and you. And the heart is a different set of skill bases that allows this thing to come back into its primordial union. And the heart sets of rules is the way that we have to manage our spiritual journey in congruence with the way of the heart. The way of the heart. We have to receive ourselves. First, we have to even muster the courage to appreciate what's there. Instead of working endlessly to build more formidable walls between ourselves and the outside world, we have to break down those walls. Because those walls have not only separated me from you, they've already also separated me from myself. And now I need to reorient myself to this. And the first true tasks that all of us have to face is self-appreciation. We can go nowhere without it because therein the walls start crumbling down. The sense that this is even worth noticing, paying attention to. If we hate something with such despicable intensity, why would we want to pay attention to it? We just want to get over it, get it out of our life and move on. And every single aspect of ourselves needs to be have attention paid to it. And some of us think, well, I can ride this thing around my difficulties. I can get in my little spiritual vehicle and I'll go towards emptiness and never have to deal with some of the smudge marks that I have avoided my whole life and continue to avoid unconsciously. And we start looking out of the Playtex glass of emptiness and all we see are smudge marks. All we see is our own reflected face coming back at us. We may catch a glimpse of something and we, ch- we try to put our eyes to that but it's hopeless because we've done that in spite of ourselves, not including ourselves. We haven't brought ourselves with us. We have to start where the boundaries are formed and bring ourselves back in to the fold. And we look at all the areas of ourself that we have discounted. All the assumptions we have made about ourselves that have built these brick hard walls of self and other. Those walls are only based upon assumptions of pain. The fortress is heavy because the consciousness is so contrived and so contracted. So we begin to look. We begin to do the journey and the dirty work that we never wanted to do. We look at the issues 
of our own suffering. And we begin to embrace with heart those issues. And we look and challenge the assumptions on which those issues are based. And I don't mean giving them a glossy, superficial Passover. I mean going right into them until those assumptions can sustain themselves. And they break down. And lo and behold, what happens is that we begin to de-evolve. Suddenly, we come into a sense of, a sense of unity. Not that the mind has shut down and no longer sees differentiation. It does. It will always see that. Because that's what it's, as an organ, is meant to do. But it starts feeling, there's a different organ resonance that we tune into, and that organ begins to sense, sense the unifying factor that we have discounted when we've only looked out of our eyes. The mind can't hold awareness. It doesn't consider awareness. It considers danger. It doesn't consider awareness. It differentiates. It doesn't consider unification. The heart is the organ that does that. And so, what is, what does effort, congruent effort look like? What does it look like when we operate it in accordance, in accordance with the understanding of unification, which is where we've come from and where spirituality is going. So first of all, congruent effort knows where it's going. It knows that it's not going into the specific details and presentations and appearances of life. That that's where I've come from. That's what the problems have been. And it thereby uses tools which help me understand the limitations of investing in the discrete forms of life and allows me to come into a greater sense of the wonder and mystery and unification that always is there and has been since time immemorial. It hasn't changed. We've just been looking through the wrong organ, the wrong sense of sense doors. So what, is, what, is, what does effort look like, you see? Does it look like this? Or is it the therapist at work? The good therapist at work? What does discovery look like? What effort is necessary for discovery? What effort is necessary for creativity? What effort is necessary for listening? What effort is necessary for investigating and exploring? What effort is necessary for learning? Because all of those words are the words of unification. What effort is necessary to get over something? You see? All of a sudden we have different hardened shapes and projects and difficulties. That's a very different kind of effort than effort to rejoin, to listen, to understand. That is the effort we have to make. 
the effort that's aligned not from the set of problems, because there aren't any problems except what the mind has created, but the inherent unity to w- in which I have not focused. It looks like relaxation. Release of tension. Because the tension, the tension was the sense of anxiety that grouped itself in opposition to something. That's why we're tense. So it doesn't look like tension. It looks like relaxation, the release of psychic distance. It looks like a deep, abiding, steady calm. Then we start thinking, I need that. Then we're off again. We're wrong. We have misunderstood if this is inherent, this unity just has been misperceived, that it was there when the first cell took form and has been there since through the evolution of the countless species and variety within species that has existed, that that unity has sustained itself, it just hasn't been observed, then when I want to refocus upon it, it's not a new, it's not something I need to uh, build upon. It's not something I need to externalize and pursue. It's not something I need to search for as something outside of me. It's something I need to find within me. And so the search is not externalized, it's internalized. Okay, just relax. Let it find me. If it doesn't find me, it's not worth having. That's really my modus operandi. If it's not there, it's not worth having. You will not find me trying to cultivate anything. If it's not there, it's not worth having. If it's not there, then it's inauthentic. I don't want to create something more inauthentic to come to authenticity. What sense does that make? It's not worth having. Period. So that eliminates an awful lot of stuff and sets us correctly aligned with history, with our biological history. Okay. So if it's not there and I'm not noticing, if it's here and I'm not noticing, that's a different kind of problem. Why aren't I noticing it? Why am I not noticing this thing? Because my defenses keep protecting me from the very authenticity that I seek. And I keep bringing those defenses to bear to try to find that authenticity. So I've got to stop doing that. In other words, stop resisting experience at all. And so my relaxation goes beyond just, you know, the physicality of form. It goes into non-resistance, the fiber on which we are built. And now, in order to see where I'm resisting, I have to get very still. So stillness isn't something I'm seeking. It's something that if I, if relaxation, if I'm to find where I am inhibiting my own authenticity, I have to be very quiet to see where that resistance is taking place. And the quieter I get, the more I notice where it is that I am 
building attention to life that doesn't need to be there, bringing forth relaxation, and lo and behold, here it comes in. And some of us, because we have been so tightly wound around our tension, only know ourselves from a boil of tension, coil of tension, and therefore when we relax and we feel a little more spacious, we get panicky. Because for 3.8 billion years, we haven't had that space. If you've lived inside of a shoebox, you don't want out. There is a story in, a number of years ago in some Minnesota paper or something where there is this little kid, like a three-year-old, who had been abused his whole life by his mother. In fact, physically abused. And, in fact, he had been turned out into a Minneapolis winter in January, nude. His mother just threw him outside. So he'd be picked up by a neighbor. And the picture in the paper was the court scene where he was being taken away from his mother into a foster home. And the child was leaning, begging for his mother as he, the court was taking him out. If we've lived inside of a shoebox, we only want to wear shoes. There is a world out here, people, if we have the courage to, to stand up and take the posture and move into it. And it feels like taking off a tight pair of shoes. But we have to have the courage. We have to be willing to go through the fear because that has been our cue since time immemorial, that we need to take refuge away from something, to use it now, to dismiss it, to see, to begin to open through fear is very difficult to do. I give us that. But the mind isn't going to let you roll into this thing. After 3.8 billion years of very solid conditioning in just the opposite direction. It's going to come at us. It's going to come at us. Relaxing. 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 I call it the four R's. Relaxing, relinquishing, releasing, and rejoining. Relaxing, releasing, releasing the need to control. The need to control is the evolutionary knee-jerk response to maintaining an environment in which I am empowered and influenced and being able to separate myself and control the circumstances of all around security. And so we're up against this constant urge to go the exactly the opposite way that our spiritual hearts are inclined. That's why we keep finding ourselves in dead ends. Because we keep applying those evolutionary urges, backing us further and further away from what we really want, which is the call of the wild, the wolf's call, the whale's call, the sounds of the ocean, the heart's yearning. Either that, or we keep looking externalizing because we've only learned how to externalize ourselves 
The solution must be out there somewhere. The search must be to find something out there and bring it in. Because that's the way we have lived, driven by our desires. Find something out there and ingest it in here. So the whole setup, the whole way the stage is set up, is fraudulent. It's all perfectly aligned, completely opposite in the direction we want to go. Remember, we're de-evolving, whatever the English word is. And so we have to be on top of ourselves in order to do that. We have to be really aware of where the conditioning responses, that ignition of conditioning tries to play forth again and again. Spark plug conditioning. And it's no greater place than in our own efforts. None. Relaxing. Releasing. Relinquishing. Relinquishing everything that's been inauthentic. Everything that we have built up as pretentious barriers. Everything that we have added to ourselves for image or circumstantial occasions. We relinquish that. Because how can we find, how can we listen to anything authentic when all we hear is our neediness, our neurotic neediness? And finally, the rejoining. There you just let your heart go. You just tune in and you let your heart just go. And it just walks. It knows exactly how to connect. And it doesn't need a sensor, doesn't need a monitor, it doesn't need any commentary in order to do that. In fact, the absence of that is connection. And to give full empowerment to the heart. And we have to connect with everything, just like a therapist does. If a therapist, for one moment, misrepresents what they are hearing for their, from their own internal noise, they are off projecting upon the client and misrepresenting the client completely. So too we have to listen completely quietly to what's authentically there. Not what we've told ourselves, not what history or evolution has given us, and by this I mean not evolutionary of past lifetimes and species orientation, but I'm talking about this lifetime of what our parents said to us. That has more volume and more control than any aspect of history. But do we know the difference between now and then? Don't you think we should know the difference between now and then to be able to survive now? We don't need to know then to survive now. That's evolutionary thought that I need when I was small, I was told certain things that I now need to bring forth in order to stay protected as an, as an empowered adult. We don't need that anymore. But we don't even know how to listen 
so that we know the difference between now and then. And so we see keep succumbing to then. Because that's what we have learned to do to protect ourselves. The assumptions we've made about ourselves. The person we so nobly pretend to be. And as long as you want it, you can have it. But as long as you have it, you'll be in pain. That's a given. Change your focus. Change your dimension so that we're not controlled by appearance and differentiation. And you have the wonders of life. And you have a full impact of the heart. And the full wonders thereof. And that which never evolved, never grew, in fact has remained the same since 3.8 billion years ago and long before that, is waiting for us to rejoin it. The Sistine Chapel. And it's as close to us as the air we breathe. How could it not be? It's never moved away. It's let all these circumstances and all this evolution and all this troubling history just move right around it. And it itself has not moved one inch. Not budged. And suddenly, when we are free of by disinvesting, divesting, our truth into the circumstantial appearances. It's there waiting. It catches us like a safety net over a high wire. We say, this high wire isn't worth I'm not. I'm not walking this anymore. It takes too much tension. Why don't you change topics, Rodney? Why do you keep talking about... Don't talk about... Talk about how I can... I can't do that anymore, people. This is too important. There's too much of all of our lives at stake. Because it is my conviction that as we surrender the investment we not only change our energetic reference, we affect the consciousness of the species because it's all tied together. And if we start, if we get lost in the play of further selfing ourselves through our life, that also gets invested into the consciousness of human beings. And we're at a critical time, I think, in the species where we cannot continue to play in that way. Thank you. Can we sit for a moment? <laughs>